services revenue is kind of like crack. Like you, it's hard to walk away from, right? And you, shifting that mindset from a profitability mindset to an investment mindset, not everybody can make that shift. And even if you can make it, you still have to prove that you've made it in order to raise capital and in order to be taken seriously. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Neha Sampat, founder and CEO at ContentStack, an API-first, headless CMS for digital content across multiple channels. Since Bing founded in 2018, they have grown to a team of over 160 people with around $26 million in revenue. In this episode, we'll talk about identifying and prioritizing your best product. We hear about disrupting the established competition by offering a superior problem-solving and after-sales care. And we hear about attracting ambitious clients with changing needs in a stale market. Let's get into it. What was the opening in the market that you saw that led you to start ContentStack? Content Stack was formed and incubated essentially as a part of my digital services agency that I was running at the time. That company was called Raw Engineering. And we were tasked for several clients, mostly Fortune 1000 companies, with helping them figure out how to think about cloud computing, which was new, and how to think about mobile, which was also kind of new, especially bringing mobile apps to work and building mobile apps for the enterprise. In doing that, we implemented several different content management systems across the board, Sitecore, Adobe, Drupal, WordPress, you name it. And what we learned is that most of those systems were built 25 years ago and really built for web. And we were trying to do things that were a bit more innovative and new digital channels were coming about and people cared about doing things quickly and dynamically and more personalized. And so we found that there wasn't like a simple API first way to do that, that could go to be omni-channel oriented. So originally we built this very simple CMS actually back in 2011 to address some use cases that were specific to our client base. And then we kept adding some functionality and you know, 2012, 2013 came around, we started to sell it as raw engineering CMS. So it was one of the first, if not the first, headless CMSs in the market. What we found is as things evolved and people were going through their digital evolutions in their organizations, they were finding that they needed more and more of these omni-channel use cases to bring to life. And so headless content management or API-first content management became more important. And as a result of that, we decided that there was so much demand and there was so much happening inbound to us for the product that we decided to spin it out of raw engineering. That happened in January of 2018. By the time we spun it out in 2018, it was a full-fledged CMS that could compete with all the incumbents in the market. The demand for headless CMS wasn't always there. It was created over time. To inspire change and great demand, focus on how things can be better instead of what's wrong. Otherwise, you risk your audience taking your message personally, interpreting that you are suggesting they're wrong or stupid. Putting your audience on the defensive is not a winning persuasive proposition. To do a better job at setting the foundation for your messaging and the stories you tell, craft a point of view. But instead of trying to push your views onto the audience, you welcome them into a new and exciting world. Change is the only constant thing, so what has changed in the world? What is happening today that needs our attention? Paint the picture of the opportunity in front of them. 
Share your excitement. Show your leads how change equals possibility. Give them a clear vision of the destinations and specific steps to get there. Bring your best evidence that the changes you speak of are true and those who adapt to change reap the benefits. You want people to nod their heads and go, yeah, I've been saying this for years. Your brand now becomes a tour guide to this new reality. And your job is to help them see the world from a fresh perspective. You show people what is possible now. When people believe that your brand story is really their story, you have a big advantage. How long did it take you to build it to, to get it market ready? It's kind of an interesting timeline because market re- the definition of market ready sort of evolved over time. And so when you call it, it's good enough to release. Like officially 2013 is when we started to sell it as a licensed based product, usually attached to a services contract. And by the time we started to sell it independently of services, it was probably late 2014. So started as a services company building custom stuff for clients and you found that existing solutions were not good enough for the modern world where content can live on all kinds of devices. And so it was really a product-based approach where you guys were doing innovation essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're product nerds, right? (laughs) My founders and my co-founders and I, and so we would try to solve problems with products or minimal solutions, especially when things didn't exist in the market off the shelf. And even sometimes when they did, if it was easier or faster for us to just build something. And so that's what it started as. It was just addressing a need that had grown and that we were seeing not just in one account, but pretty consistently across the board. And so we did. We just solved it with something that was just a very simple form-based API CMS. And it evolved into something much bigger over time. So in 2018, when you launched officially as Content Stack, what was the competitive landscape like back then? It's super interesting because at that time, I would say we were just before the chasm, right, in terms of adoption. And there was still a lot of education happening on what is headless CMS or what is API first CMS. And it was definitely not mainstream. It was more a lot of early adopters or folks that had very specific use cases that were additive to their core content infrastructure. And so the competitive landscape, there was three or four players, including us, that were the leaders and that were consistently brought into opportunities when a company was trying to do something super innovative that they couldn't do with their existing platforms. And uh, of course, that evolved from there, but that's kind of how it started for us. Your first prototype is everyone else. Whatever problem you're solving, look for people or companies who have solved it before and start there. This unlocks so much speed. Stack your own ideas and the innovation on top of that. The Innovation Stack by Jim McCulvey is a great book, highly recommended for founders and product leaders. Here's a word from Jim. The Innovation Stack is simply a way of interweaving inventions together, sometimes very simple inventions, but put enough of these together and they start to take on their own life and they create new industries. So if you look throughout history at the great industries that have started, almost always there's an innovation stack at the beginning. But I didn't know any of this. So when we started Square, it wasn't like, I want to build an innovation stack. No, I had, I had no idea that any of this was happening. But it turns out that there's this thing, this process that can happen when you start to solve a perfect problem, something that has not been solved before. Because most of what we do is copying, and most of our tools and training and comfort is with solutions that exist. When you get out of the world of copying, 
you can build something that is truly different, but the process is different. And it creates this thing called an innovation stack. If you build an innovation stack, at least in my studies, your company will dominate the world. It will just run whatever business you're in. You can and should compete on features and capabilities. In fact, innovations are the most reliable way to quickly grow your market share. But you need to realize that these are transient advantages. While you're ahead, you need to invest in moats and innovation stacks. A lot of uh, professional services companies start out thinking that one day will be SaaS and software and so on, but they never get there. Like very few successful examples, but most are never able to transition over. How did you guys pull it off and what would be your advice for how to do that successfully? You know, we kind of joke and people say this and anyone in the services industry will understand this, but services revenue is kind of like crack. Like it's hard to walk away from, right? And you, I mean, it's hard to scale, obviously, but you're profitable from the start and from the get-go. And so shifting that mindset from a profitability mindset to an investment mindset, not everybody can make that shift. And even if you can make it, you still have to prove that you've made it in the market in order to raise capital and in order to be taken seriously in the market. And so the main thing I can say is if you're contemplating it, just give it a shot. And the one thing that I learned is you have to separate the people that are working on services from the people that you've got in your incubation engine. Like you, they have to be sacred. Don't pull them in just because there's a deal. And that's the only way to make the transition happen is to be really diligent about that and deliberate about who's working on what in order to set yourself up to be able to do that kind of a transition. I built the services company in 2011 and used its profits five years later to start an e-learning business. And three years later, used the profits of both to start a software company. A lot of companies start a services businesses because it's the easiest, least expensive way to start a business. They think maybe later they'll add on software as a service company or whatever, but never get there. It's too hard. They're typically always working on client stuff, and there's no bandwidth to work on your moonshot projects. Having done this successfully twice, I have two key pieces of advice here. One, the new initiative needs a 100% dedicated team. It can't be that some team members do both. You need dedicated people using all of their mind space to build the new thing. And two, Someone with experience and authority needs to lead the new initiative. Ideally, the founder or one of the co-founders, if there are many. People have tried bringing in a product manager for these things, but founder is a different type of animal. Building essentially a brand new company, even if grown from inside another, needs an entrepreneur to lead it. So when you guys were in our content stack, you started with already a roster of customers, right? It wasn't like you started, it wasn't day zero, really. Yes, for sure. And it's interesting because not everyone has the luxury of starting that way, but we had the credibility of an existing customer base, customers that were really excited to continue to work with us, a little bit of revenue that was attached to that, and a little bit of cash that we were able to spin out with. So we had a head start compared to others in the market, which meant we weren't in a rush to raise capital. We wanted to do it very carefully and with the right partners. And so it gave us the time to figure that out. You guys raised a pretty significant Series A, like more than 30 million. The number indicates that you had pretty significant traction by then. What was the gap between the launch and you guys doing the Series A? It's interesting. I actually learned a ton about how to think about raising capital, especially your first round. And 
if anything, I think when I spun out the company, I thought I would, I was ready for a series A immediately. And I started to have conversations about raising five or $7 million. I still had to prove myself to the market as a SaaS founder and a SaaS entrepreneur and not a services mindset individual. And so that took a little bit of time. So we actually ended up buying some time to demonstrate that we had figured that out and also to increase the value of the company. And I did that by doing a small seed round. And that gave us a little bit of extra runway to hire our go-to-market leaders and start revving up the engine for higher growth. By the time, almost a year and a half later, when we raised the Series A, we had essentially delivered on the promise of that growth, added to our customer base, built a go-to-market team that was humming, and that led to an increased valuation. Tell me more about that early success. What specifically did you guys do to you know, get the traction? What worked for getting customers? Uh, what kind of product strategy did you have in place? The most important thing on the content stack side that always stood out with us, and I think this actually comes from the consulting mindset, is that we had a consultative mindset in our sale and our pre and post sales kind of relationship. And what that has done even fast forward to three years into the journey is we've got over 99% retention of customers. And that means when a customer comes on board, we take good care of them. We do it in as much of an automated way as possible because you want it to scale, but the high touch is there when it needs to be there. And the care comes across very authentically and it's just who we are and it's in our DNA. And I think that's probably the most important part of our strategy so far and our understanding of the complexity in an enterprise and being able to navigate some of the hairy things that happen, not just from a product and technology perspective, but also like cross-functionally, there's different competing agendas. And we actually understand that really well because we come from the services side of the world. So we've built the product and our processes and our sales process and the POCs and our post-sales process to address some of those challenges that enterprises have. But along the way, there's also been just sort of things that have happened in the industry that have led to changes in the product or growth in the product. We have thought about multi-cloud very often because some retail companies don't want to just work with Amazon. So that's an option that we have now. We've had to think about incorporating a lot of integrations because in order to be really successful in a microservices approach, you need to be able to integrate with the best of breed of all the services that surround your ecosystem. So content stack being sort of the core hub of content infrastructure inside an organization, you want it to be able to attach to the best personalization engine and the best translation engine. And so we've put a lot of effort and investment into what we call a catalyst ecosystem, which is our partner network of technologies and SIs that help bring a solution together for a company. And so that's been a lot of the, where the decisions and investment have gone over the last couple of years. So being a CMS that, you know, naturally lends to um, some stickiness because, you know, companies don't want to change their CMS, you know, every year. So switching cost as a moat is baked in by definition. But what else specifically have you done then to increase that retention to 99%? What are some examples? Yeah, so it's interesting because the switching costs, there's pros and cons to it, right? You're always competing with status quo and content management, as you said early on, isn't brand new, you're always competing against something that's already there, right? So there is the switch, but there's also the opportunity cost if you don't switch. And that's where the value sell really comes in. And so typically what we do is we help uncover a project where we can deliver value really quickly in an organization. 
And the way that we do that is through the selling process. We'll ensure that you're able to get something built on a, in a POC, something that delights both the business user and the tech user. And then we're able to then turn that into the first engagement. And that time to value is so fast that eventually there's always just going to be growth in the account because people want to do more once they understand how the product works and they uncover ways to use it. And so a lot of that is organic, to be honest, because it's just so easy compared to what people are used to, but they kind of have to get over the hump of believing that that's real. <laughs> is your customer acquisition mainly inbound or outbound? It's a combination, but for the early days, it was mostly inbound. And that's what led us to believe we're sitting on something really big and important. And the demand has just been growing. And so inbound is certainly where we get our first and highest propensity to buy leads. But there's also um, an outbound motion because we are still educating the market, and especially in emerging markets, trying to open up people's eyes to a new way and a better way. It's so much easier to be in a space where there is existing demand for your product. If you're doing something new where you have to explain what it is and why somebody should use it, you're going to have a way harder time selling and growing. You can't rely on inbound marketing as much because nobody knows to search for it. And then the game is all about market education and creating demand. The downside of selling a product with a lot of existing demand is more competition. So speed of execution becomes essential. If it's an emerging category, lots of pieces are up in the air. There's chaos, but there's also opportunity. Once the dust settles and the pieces fall back down, the opportunity is gone. So going into the opportunity with deep pockets, an army of developers or whatever other cornered resource is a major advantage. Those customers coming to you, are they feeling a certain pain? What triggers the sign up? And then how do you make the case then to go with you instead of the competition? What's the differentiation play? There's usually a pain point. Otherwise, people wouldn't be shopping, right? And typically, that has to do with time to develop something because a lot of the systems that are incumbents or that were built previously, they require a very specialized skill set or they just take a lot of time because of the way that they were built and constructed for just a suite-based approach to things. They're just not as agile. And so usually it's some kind of a time constraint. And one example of that, we had a big retailer who was going into holiday season and for the second year in a row, wasn't able to make their mobile app work with their incumbent top tier market player in the CMS space. And so they came to us with a very short window to see if we could help them fix it. And they were able to build on Content Stack within a couple months their app that would go to market for Cyber Monday. And by doing that, that quickly, they realized that there is, they're sitting on something really exciting. And the fact that they were able to do that, get the support they needed, go live and run through all of Cyber Monday without a hitch and actually increase their revenue as a result, that's time to value. And so when you can demonstrate that over and over again, it just automatically leads to more business and companies are starting to hear those stories from their colleagues and they're starting to see, okay, somebody else used Headless or somebody else used an API first model or they architected it differently or they're utilizing these microservices that work better than our incumbent, we don't want to be left behind. And so there's also this drive to not settle and to be able to lift what your ideas are to a new level and actually bring them to life, which they haven't been able to do because technology used to be a constraint for that. 
And then the other side I would say is over the last couple of years, there's a lot less education happening on API first and headless because it has become more mainstream and people now at least have heard of it or know conceptually what it is. And when, you know, you have content stack in the top quadrant of IDC marketscapes and Forrester waves, it automatically leads to that kind of credibility plus being able to talk to customers who've been successful for more than just a year on the product and talking to them about growth. That credibility is what really lends itself to winning in our deals. And then from a differentiation standpoint, it does come down to our enterprise know-how, which I talked about a little bit earlier, but that comes across really strong, not just in the product, but in the whole process of engaging with content stack. It's it's how we sell, how we have conversations, the consultative approach, how we take care of customers post-sale, how we connect them with partners that will make them successful, how we connect them with other customers or colleagues in the industry that have had success with content stack. That all comes across really strong. And then there's this equality by design, which is really about understanding both the developer and the business user in an organization and ensuring that we've built the product to address the needs of both sides, which most CMSs will choose one or the other. They'll kind of go down the path of this is a developer play or they'll go down the path of this is a WYSIWYG, easy to move things around play. And we've actually believed that to be really successful, you need to empower both sides of the house so that developers can be really innovative and build cool stuff. And business people can bring things to life and figure out how to monetize and engage their audiences. And so that's been a big differentiator as well. Those um, disgruntled customers of legacy companies, are you assuming that they're disgruntled or have you figured out a way to uh, pitch them throughout Pounder? How does that work? It's pretty obvious. And I mean, you get it in like when you have your first call and you have a conversation where someone says three years into our one-year deployment of X, (laughs) you can't be happy in that situation and people become complacent because there was nothing better and they sort of had to settle. And it was the only solution that they wouldn't get fired for buying in the past. That's no longer the case. And now we've created an alternative that is better and it's no longer arguably better. It's just better. And people are seeing it and recognizing that. And now it's just a matter of time before they make the change. Typically what happens in categories as they get more mature, every player, every competitor eventually has the same capabilities. You know, if you look at like email marketing or CRMs, like every every tool does everything. And so the product-led differentiation becomes minimal to none. So thinking ahead, 2025 and beyond, competitors are not sleeping, new people will emerge, lots of money going around. Are you building any other non-product modes, like brand modes, marketing modes, things like that? One thing that we recently announced, in, there's sort of two pieces to it. One is this concept of care without compromise. And this goes back to our customer success superpower, but it's the idea that you can not only go down the stacks versus suite approach, but you can do it with the confidence that you're working with vendors that actually will deliver same or better value in terms of your customer care. And that's typically been a barrier, right? People want that idea of like one throat to choke. They want to go to a single vendor and get everything and have one support ticket and have that followed through. But the reality is that doesn't work anyway, because there's disparate silos within any large organization when you have a big suite. And in kind of contrast to that, we started to work with some of our closest catalyst technology partners where 
content stack plus two or three other solutions work really well together as a blueprint. And we've added a layer of customer care where there's a memorandum of understanding between all of the different vendors involved. And we ensure that if we get a customer call and it's about content stack or one of these other vendors, we'll take the first call, we'll have the conversation, we'll try to solve the problem. And if we can't, we'll do a warm handoff to someone on the other side. And that gives everyone kind of a little bit more confidence. That's something that is no longer a barrier to entry for going down the stack approach. And then the other thing, just recently, we announced an acquisition from Raw Engineering, where we brought over 53 experts that were content management implementation experts into Content Stack because they understand the product so well that they'll help us improve how we actually build out that customer care. They've done integrations with a lot of the companies in our ecosystem, so they can help us to build out those blueprints. And then they can help our Catalyst partners to get the training that they need to be successful at implementing Content Stack as well. And so there's just a lot of investment. We're putting our money where our mouth is in terms of ensuring that we can actually deliver on a vision and not just a promise. Content Stack have brought along and invested in people with a unique combination of experience working in both services and SaaS. People with deep enterprise know-how. This helps give them an edge over the competition when it comes to sales and customer success, and one which their competitors would struggle to replicate. It's what Hamilton Helmer refers to as a cornered resource in his book, Seven Powers, the Foundations of Business Strategy. So if you have rights to certain resources, or assets of some sort, and that those can't be taken away from you, and that they are materially valuable and sufficient so that if they were transferred to some, another company, they would also enjoy the economic benefit of them, then that can be a source of value. You know, the example I lose in my book is Pixar. What happened there was in the early stages of Pixar, there was a early group that went through the hell of developing Toy Story 1 and 2 and Bugs Life and learned how to work together in this incredible creative way. And each of those people involved in that became able to direct these amazing movies. And so Pixar ended up with this incredible string of successes, really unparalleled in the movie business. But in this case, they were devoted to Pixar. If DreamWorks wanted to hire them away, they wouldn't go. And Disney, in fact, tried to hire back some of the resources and they, they wouldn't go. Eventually, Disney bought them, of course. So they were a valuable resource that created the success of the company. So the customer success that you provide for uh, customers, uh, it goes beyond, you know, just hear software, go nuts. You also help them implement uh, strategy, things like that. Do you charge for that uh, or is that comes with the software? Yeah, so we don't really have a services arm necessarily. We're more, the consultative approach is in our onboarding. So it's a part of the customer success process. So when you join Content Stack as a customer, you get a number of hours of onboarding services that's just included as a part of the initial contract. And that typically will be some kind of architectural guidance. You know, we'll look at what you're trying to do and just make sure you're following best practices. And then we'll do an, a developer training and an editor training separately. And then we'll just do a check-in to make sure you're good to go. And then there's quarterly check-ins and sort of as needed, if you need to talk to a solutions architect, we just make that available. But it's not like a long services engagement or a paid for engagement in any way, really. Did you focus on the building the partner ecosystem from day one? Was that on like an obvious strategy to pursue? From a strategy standpoint, definitely obvious. But focusing on it from day one, 
it evolves. And we may have started with a couple SI partners, um, system integrator partners, but over time it's evolved into a much more strategic program with a lot more parameters and certifications and badges and and joint marketing. And so it, it's been an evolution and an opportunity that we have to continue to invest in and continue to grow and expand. And if you think about your competitors, aren't they also able to do the same place with partners and customer success and enterprise know-how? How are you thinking of like winning against competition here? On paper, you can certainly say that you're doing certain things where it really comes across is in play. And if you look at some of our customers that have moved from our headless competitors back to content stack or over to content stack, they've done it because they haven't been able to accomplish what they needed to with those players. And so, yes, those players can evolve and they can bring in the right expertise to do it. I think the difference is for us, it's in our DNA to be enterprise centric and customer care centric. And that's something you can't take away and, the fact that it's so organic for us, I think, is one of our core differentiators. I worked in enterprise companies. My co-founders have worked in enterprise companies. So we, we just know, we know the space, we know the pain points. We've been on the inside of that, and we've been the implementers of, of that. And that's just an experience that you can't just automatically replace. And when it starts at the top like that, it trickles to everyone. Like everyone understands those pains, and they understand why what the mission is and why we're doing it. And the fact that it's trying to empower people in their daily jobs to be able to do the best work of their career by providing the best solution in the market. Unless you're an innovator, when your target market is shopping, they're comparing you to a number of players in your category, especially category leaders. For example, if you're a CRM, you can be sure they're also looking at Salesforce, HubSpot, Pipedrive, etc. Optimizing your website messaging for why choose us, not why sign up. If you pitch your tool by describing what you enable people to do, you're making two mistakes. You're positioning yourself as a commodity. There could be 30 other tools doing what you do. Two, when you describe basic capabilities, you're insulting my intelligence. You might be the first tool in a category I hear about, but unlikely. Here I am comparing 10 plus tools and you explain to me why it's good to have a headless CMS. So when you make a case for yourself, lead with a differentiated position or narrative. Highlight your specific advantage, which use cases it's best at. Remember, soft innovation and emotional points of difference will go much further in the world of endless features. Over the last three years, what kind of strategy bets did not pay off? You know, if you don't try things that sometimes don't work, then you're not trying enough things, you could argue. I think one thing that we grappled with is how much do we go towards the independent developer? And some of our competitors are really good at this, actually. And so do you build a community for developers? How does that work? How much investment does that take? How do you ensure the same level or same quality of support if you do that? And so I think that's one area that, honestly, we haven't quite cracked yet from a strategic standpoint. And we've looked at, we're definitely more enterprise oriented. So how do we make sure that the developers that we bring into that ecosystem are enterprise developers? And it's not easy to do. And so I think that's one area that, um, from a strategic bet standpoint, we haven't quite nailed. If you think about dominating in the future, what kind of bets are you now making that you think will you know, lead you to success? So my take is that the incumbents in the market are not innovating fast enough and they're kind of leaving their customers to dry to a certain extent because 
they just can't do the things that they promise you can do. And what that's leading to is people are getting aggravated and looking for better solutions. And so I think it's just a matter of time before people move off of legacy suites and start to adopt stacks. I mean, that's the big play. Now it's a matter of how do you do that in a way that brings everyone confidence and conviction that it's the right way and that we're the right solution. And for me, that's really investing in the ecosystem and investing in the blueprints and investing in sort of the marketplace that surrounds all of that. And so that's the big strategic bet is really just making sure that we understand the complexity of implementing a really strong content solution or the best digital experience platform in the market. And how do you be at the center of that and connect all the dots in the best way possible? Building an effective community for developers is a strong mode for content stacks competition. In fact, it is one of the things which has made category leaders in other areas like Shopify and e-commerce so effective. Here's their VP growth, Morgan Brown, on how it worked for them. One of Shopify's incredible advantages is the ecosystem in which it exists, right? So Shopify app developers, Shopify agencies, um, there is a whole Shopify experts. There's a whole ecosystem of capability that takes this kind of core product and extends it in many different ways. And you get this really powerful flywheel of more people contributing to the ecosystem, which creates a stronger product offering, which creates a, a more compelling product to try and use and stick with. That's one of the big advantages that Shopify has. A word of warning though, the reality is that many communities never take off and become ghost towns instead. You have to consider the time and cost sink of becoming the gatekeeper of a two-sided marketplace with app developers on one side and enterprise customers on the other. What are you doing to compete on brand and better marketing? We have a lot of fun things up our sleeve for next year, including our first ever customer conference. So uh, just getting the content stack brand out more widely and our customers are the ones that are allowed to talk about it are such big fans that really just telling their stories more vividly and helping to kind of get across the idea of what a really good digital experience looks like and being able to tell those stories on stages and in use cases and on podcasts. And so really just a lot more customer marketing is where um, there's a lot of opportunity for us. So how is Content Stack winning? One, they first learned about the customers in the market by offering a service and later managed to successfully transition from a services company to a software company. You have to separate the people that are working on services from the people that you've got in your incubation engine. Like they have to be sacred. Two, they hopped on a market with a lot of demand and were perfectly suited to execute fast towards opportunity. Inbound is certainly where we get our first and highest propensity to buy leads. And that's what led us to believe we're sitting on something really big and important. And the demand has just been growing. Three, they have a cornered resource, deep knowledge about the enterprise, the audience they are serving. For us, it's in our DNA to be enterprise-centric and customer care-centric. And that's something you can't take away. And the fact that it's so organic for us, I think is one of our core differentiators. A final takeaway from Neha. The incumbents in the market are not innovating fast enough and leaving their customers to dry to a certain extent. I think it's just a matter of time before people move off of legacy suites and start to adopt stacks. 
And that's how you win. I'm Pepe Leo. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.